Hey there. This podcast is brought to you from aboutmeditation.com. Check out our free How to Meditate mini course. Five easy lessons that teach you how to meditate in minutes. www.aboutmeditation.com Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from aboutmeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hey there, and welcome to episode five of the One Mind podcast. Today, I am super excited to share my interview with author and personal coach, Barry Davenport. Before we jump in, if you enjoy this podcast, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review so more people can learn about the show. That'd be a huge help. Thank you so much. Okay, today we are going to dive into a topic that I love, how to create healthy habits. This is something that Barry Davenport actually teaches to people with our online courses. So I learned about Barry's work when someone told me about her new book, Peace of Mindfulness. I really enjoyed this book because it blends a powerful scientific basis for meditation with lots of great anecdotes and practical how-to guidance and tips. But also, the book is wrapped in the warmth of Barry's Southern charm and her clear passion for mindfulness, something I think you're going to really hear come through my interview with her. So in this show, we talk about her work teaching mindfulness to her clients and why she left a 20-year career as a PR executive and then became a successful author and coach. We cover a lot of ground in this podcast, so much so that I broke it into two distinct episodes. In part one, we explore Barry's own story and how she helps her clients build confidence through mindfulness. And in part two, we explore the power of habit and Barry shares her seven-step protocol for building a meditation habit that's going to last. I think you're going to love that. So if you know our work at aboutmeditation.com, then you also know that we put a lot of emphasis on the science of how to create healthy habits. It's something I'm passionate about personally because it's one of the most common questions that we get. People always ask us, how do I create a meditation habit? I've started meditation, but I can never keep up with it. So people are looking for strategies, techniques, and really practical guidance when it comes to this question of how to create a meditation habit that lasts. So Barry and I really dive into this topic in depth and introduce some key concepts and ideas and a pragmatic step-by-step approach that you can put into practice as soon as this podcast is over. I hope you enjoy this special two-part interview with Barry Davenport. Let's jump in. Barry, hey, it's so great to have you on the show. Welcome. Well, thank you so much, Morgan. I am delighted to be here. Fantastic. All right. So you spent over 20 years as a public relations executive in Atlanta and New York. And can you tell us a little bit 
about your journey from PR consultant to author and personal coach? Yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, when I got into public relations, it was totally by accident. I was an English major uh, at university, had no idea what I wanted to do, saw an ad in the paper for special events coordinator for a department store, and that sounded like a really glamorous, fun job, though I had no idea what it entailed. Mm. And that's how I began my my long career in PR. And fortunately, it, it was a pretty good match for me, but not a perfect match for me. And when I started having children and they were young, I took a break from it and then went back and became a consultant and did that part-time as my children went into school. And my oldest daughter wanted to be a ballet dancer. Nice. Yeah, she had a real passion for that and a goal to become a professional. So I kind of put my PR consultancy on the back burner for a while so that I could help her and drive her 60 miles round trip to her studio every day and And then she went off to pursue her career, and it was time for me to get back into mine, and I just couldn't do it. Mm. There was so much internal resistance. I didn't like the work anymore. It didn't feel fulfilling or meaningful to me at all. And so I started on this search myself for my passion, sort of a a midlife thing, I guess, because I was 48 when all of this happened. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking, gosh, there's got to be more to life than me promoting other people's goods and services. And you know, there's got to be more to me than this. So I did all kinds of assessments and workshops and reading and studying and trying to figure out who I was and what I was meant to do. And coaching and counseling kept coming back for me over and over again. So I did research on both and really liked the coaching model of helping people really make great strides in their life and, and move forward toward their goals and dreams in big ways. And so I went back to school, I got my coaching certification, and then as a coach, I was trying to find a way to market my services, and I was totally uneducated about using the computer. I could, you know, surf the net and write an email, but that was about it. Nice. And so I took a a blogging course to to try to promote my, my coaching business and fell in love with blogging and the whole idea of reaching thousands of people around the world. And then it just blossomed from there. I found another passion, you know, within this coaching passion, I found this passion for writing again and and blogging and creating courses and reaching people that I couldn't reach just as a, a local coach in Atlanta. So my passion really was the, the driving impetus for um, the success of my business. You know, over the years, it's just led to more and more followers and readers and clients. And so here I am. That's awesome. I've read some of your articles. I think you're a great writer. And oh, thank you. Y- yeah, I really enjoy your blog. So that's a great story. I read your book, Peace of Mindfulness, and I really enjoyed it. I thought one of the strengths of the book, for me, one thing that I, I loved was the scientific basis you created to explain the benefits of meditation, also to support a lot of the anecdotes you gave throughout the book. I'd like to ask, why did you decide to write a book on mindfulness? Did something happen in your own life that compelled you to write a book on this topic? Or so was it personal or did you notice something that was missing in terms of what was already out there? Both. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a really great question. You know, one of the big aha moments I've had for myself, you know, really in the last, 
five or six years, although the concept has been around in my head for a long time, but the, the really the embracing the concept has only happened recently. And, and it's all about the power of the present moment. And I'd certainly say Eckhart Tolle's work has influenced me with that, but mm-hmm. just understanding how you're allowing life to slip away from you by spending so much of it focused on the future or dwelling in the past. And that really the only reality we have is right now. And if we don't experience this moment right now to its fullest, then we're not really experiencing life to its fullest. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of came crashing down on me. And I, I do think that as you get older, you feel that more profoundly because you recognize, gosh, I'm 50 years old. My life is likely more than halfway over. You know, how am I to appreciate what I've got left? You know, what, what can I do to really appreciate it? Because life has this way of throwing curveballs at you that you least expect. And so often the plans you were looking forward to or the big events or whatever can get tossed awry. Right. And if you're not appreciating what you're doing right now, if you're always looking forward or planning for, for the future, you're losing a lot of time. Right. So that was the personal way that it affected me. And I really, you know, I, I feel so determined to squeeze every bit of juice out of life I can. That's and, awesome. One, if I may yeah, ask sure. a quick question, because I'm, I'm very curious with people on the show to act. I'm always interested in the actual catalyst or events that propel people into the moments like this that you describe where everything came crashing down and you sounds like discovered something in mindfulness in this present moment context. Can you say a little bit about what that was, what happened in your, or what changed for you to whatever degree you want to share that? I'd love to know, like, what was the shift there? Yeah, I, I can't say that it was like an overnight bang over the head. It was a few years in the making. I certainly had recognized and read about the power of the present moment. In mm-hmm. fact, The Eternal Now is a book that was written by Paul Tillich a long time ago that my mom turned me on to. And I, so I understood the concept even as a teenager and how important it was. But if you don't really practice it, I mean, it's easy to understand it, but it's much harder to practice it because we're always pulled in different directions and our minds are always elsewhere. So you have to be super conscious and conscientious to keep bringing yourself back to the present. And as a young person with lots of distractions, I wasn't highly motivated to do that. It seemed like life goes on forever and you don't have to really worry about that. Mm -hmm. But I would say that, you know, reaching that critical age of 50 that I, I never thought that I would reach. And I don't think anybody who's 40 or under really believes they're going to get there. So once you do, and you are really hit with that idea of your own mortality and that life is short and things can happen. And, you know, you watch more people around you get sick or die or whatever happens to be going on in your life. Then you really want to practice it. You want to not give away any more days to distractions or fretting or worrying. So it was the process of a few years of me saying, okay, yeah, I totally believe the importance of this concept. Now Mm -hmm. what am I going to do about it to make it part of my daily life? Right. And that led to the book. That led to the book, that and the response of my readers when I would write about mindfulness and and meditation and simplicity. You know, I think people are really yearning for ways to get out of that adrenaline-fueled, hyperactive, 
highly distracted state of mind they're in. And to find something that has more power and meaning than just pursuing money or buying the next thing, even beyond experiences, which I think are the most valuable ways we can spend our time and energy, mindfulness actually gives you a gift better than experience because it returns you back to yourself and gives you this sense of freedom and inner peace that you can only get from that state of mind. Mm. So I think you know, most people who are interested in personal growth are super interested in finding a doorway to that, you know, that peaceful kingdom. Yeah. And so, you know, the more I wrote about it, the more response I got, the more I recognized that people really were hungry for that information. And I was profoundly interested in it. So it was a fun book for me to write. And the response has been really great. Fantastic. But my approach, as you mentioned, is, you know, you said something about the the science based mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. I like to offer people really practical proven strategies because there's a lot of voodoo kind of information out there that teaches things that are a little bit unproven or untested, but they sound great and they're a little bit woo woo. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to put down anybody. I'm just saying that I don't want to offer anything that either I haven't tested myself or that hasn't been tested and been proven to work. People want things that work for them. They want to be able to say, well, I tried this and it worked. I feel better. I'm less anxious. I'm happier. I'm healthier. So I wanted to offer a book that provided really specific techniques and strategies and mindsets that if you implement them, will create solid change. Is there a big gap out there in the in the the world of mindfulness books. I'm not sure. There are some great books, but everyone comes with a different perspective. Totally. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. A particularly powerful combination that you captured in the book was offering an example like a professional tennis player. I think it was Novak Djokovic. Right. And his use of visualizations. And he's one of the players known for like, coming back from huge deficits and how he uses the power of visualization and mindfulness and using specific examples of that and then coupling that with studies that actually validate the power of visualization. Don't overstate it, but also say, hey, look, there's this body of science that also supports what he's doing. And for me, I find that incredibly powerful. I did too. And, you know, Michael Phelps also used it and uses it regularly. He credits his Olympic gold medals to using visualization. Mm-hmm. Um, Russian athletes have been using it for years. I think the athletic world has already tapped into the power of really being highly focused and in the moment so that you are not distracted, that you are one with your sport, and that you've already pictured yourself as the winner or succeeding or reaching your goal. And it does change the chemistry in your brain. Right. I think I read this in a book recently about Michael Phelps. I think it was this book, The One Thing. And the description of Michael Phelps's routine and his visualization and how his coach worked with him. I know you also mentioned it in your book. Right. From, from the age of like, whatever it was, since he was a teenager or even before, visualizing the races so that by the time the race came, he was already deeply in the kind of mindset. And when he went into the water, 
He was ready for every contingency. He had actually visualized not just victory, but if something went wrong, he was ready for it. It didn't catch him off guard. And like, he's an amazing example of that. Yeah, there's a really interesting study that was published in, I think it's uh, Men's Health, Journal of Men's Health or one of those magazines, Mm -hmm. but where they had a group of people visualizing doing bicep curls. And so they did this for a period of six weeks and they measured their biceps before and after this study. And they didn't actually do bicep curls, but they just visualized themselves doing it. And their biceps grew by 13%. Are you kidding? No. So what happens is that, you know, when you're visualizing, you're stimulating the same part of your brain that is stimulated when you're actually doing the physical activity. So it's sending impulses, chemical impulses to your muscles that produce the same strengthening qualities, I guess, that, Mm -hmm. that the actual work does. So visualization doesn't just support your mental prowess or your toughness or your strength mentally, but it it actually physically (laughs) provides an extra boost to you. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. It really makes you think about how powerful it could be for your health. If you're an athlete, whatever you're doing, if you're going to make a speech to really focus in and carefully go through in your mind exactly what you want and what you'll be doing before you do it. So I want to come back to your personal engagement with and relationship to mindfulness. And I wanted to ask, do you have a daily meditation practice? And if so, what kind of practice is it? What, what do you do now? What, you know, where does it fit in your routine? Well, I wish that I could say at this very moment, it is daily. You and I've talked about offline here that we've, that I'm in the midst of a big move. And so I've sort of allowed my life to spiral a little bit out of control as a result. But I would say, that, and I do have a meditation practice, but it has been interrupted as a result. And I would say every day when I go to bed, I definitely meditate in the bed as I'm going to sleep. Mm-hmm. I focus on my breathing. I use that as a entrance into sleep. It's yeah. a way of calming my mind and you know, not allowing the day's activities to stick in my brain and sort of distract me and keep me from sleeping. But when I am practicing a true meditation, yes, I do have one where I sit and breathe and meditate for 15 or 20 minutes. Can you share what for you have been your top one or two experiences in meditation where you, either it was a transforming experience or convinced you in some new way or in some deeper way of the power of this practice? Yeah. You know, like everyone who who starts meditation, I have definitely gone through those periods of the monkey mind and wondering, what am I doing here? You know, nothing good is happening with this. I'm just having a fight with my thoughts, trying to keep them out of my head and my Mm -hmm. back's hurting and Sometimes I'd even feel this level of anxiety come up because you're sitting still and you, you're not getting it. It's not working and you're, you're struggling so much. Totally. And I have found that if I can sit for just a few minutes past that anxiety, past that moment where I feel like I just got to get up, I can't do this anymore, it's too much, I enter into this really calm space. My breathing gets nice and easy and shallow and it feels like I'm floating. 
from my understanding, that's sort of still an entry level position in the world of mindfulness uh, or in meditation. That's a great place to be, but it can be even more profound. I'm waiting for that next level, but that space has given me enough of an appetizer to realize how much meditation can provide for me and how peaceful it can be and how restorative it can be. How about you? Have you reached a place beyond that? Gosh, I've been meditating for like 20 years. And I lived in an ashram, a yoga and meditation ashram for 15 years. So we had a very kind of rigorous practice schedule. And so often we'd meditate from like midnight to 6 a.m. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, you know, one time... I sat for 48 hours straight and that was like a, a marathon meditation. I, I feel like I can resonate with all the experiences that you've talked about on the spectrum from totally insane, feeling like I'm about to explode and how could I be here sitting on this cushion one second longer? It's like a second by second thing. It is. To, yeah, to feeling the walls melt and fall away, feeling time absolutely disappear and feeling myself in the middle of the heartbeat of the universe, just completely connected to everything. And And that's a beautiful expression in the middle of the heartbeat of the universe. I think that is, um, that's, that's the goal. Well, thank you. And yeah, I, I agree. And I feel like actually when I did read your book, and I've picked it up a couple times since originally reading it, that I could feel your own passion for meditation through that book. And I think when you develop a practice like we both have and and like a lot of people listening, when you just read something like Peace of Mindfulness, immediately, several times reading your book, it would just put me in that space. And I, and I think part of it is because when you feel someone's authentic passion for the topic, it communicates it. It communicates the thing itself. And I felt that reading your book. I wanted to tell you that. Oh, and that's nice. That's yeah. the best an author can hope for. Great. Well, yeah. And well, you obviously put a lot of work into it. And I think that really came through. Yeah. You were talking about all of the work you've done as a very proficient meditator. Mm. It reminded me actually of, I don't know if you've read anything by Sam Harris. Who's, yeah. Yeah. So did you meditate with Sam Harris? I No, I've never meditated with him, but I've read excerpts from his book, Waking Up, and listened yeah. to podcasts with him talking about altered states of consciousness and stuff. Yes. And, and he certainly had similar experiences to you in terms of his dedication to meditation and spending days and days in an ashram and sitting for hours and hours. And mm-hmm. so that is, that is not something I have done. I have three kids. I raised three kids. It's been a super busy, intense last 20 years doing that. So when you are a busy person, I'm not suggesting you're not a busy person. You are, and you may have three kids too. I don't know. But for me, it would, it was hard to have a meditation practice when you'd hide in the bathroom or whatever, and then little fingers would come under the door and yeah. <laughs> interrupt you and all of those things. So, <laughs> Probably literally and figuratively, right? Yes, that's right. I had to find ways to eke out meditation and w- whenever I could get it. Yeah. And one of the recent discoveries for me was chi running. Are you familiar with chi running? No, but it sounds fascinating. 
Yeah, so it's really um, a gentleman who wrote the book is an expert in Tai Chi, and he bases his form of running all around a lot of the techniques of Tai Chi and the mindfulness of your body as you're running, Mm -hmm. um, aligning your body with the natural forces of gravity, being connected to nature. So beautiful. You're not just running like to get your exercise out of the way or to beat your last time or just to get that runner's high, but you are truly present in your body. You're feeling, you're noticing all the feelings that you're having. You're connected with the surroundings. So, you know, that's one place, of course, that I can put myself in a meditative state. Mm-hmm. And then in any activities of my day, when whether it's putting dishes in the dishwasher or folding laundry or even driving in my car, if you can keep returning back to what you're doing, the task at hand or the, the surroundings or the feelings that you're feeling, your five senses, it's another way to sort of produce similar feelings without having to spend those 48 hours in the lotus position. Yeah, I agree completely. And yeah. to, I mean, to be honest, part of the reason why I wanted to start interviewing more and more people was one, obviously I'm passionate about meditation, but I realized that my perspective comes from a context in which I was sequestered in an ashram for 15 years. And to be honest, a little cut off from the contemporary conversation around mindfulness and meditation and its relevance. And it's also exploding mm-hmm. popularity and seeing it kind of leap into Silicon Valley and then into like the UK government adopting it so they can become a mindful nation and Harvard really picking up the ball and running with it in terms of the research. And it's this incredibly interesting moment. It's been around for 3000 years and it's been mostly in one context and now it's exploding into the mainstream. And so I feel like authorities like yourself embracing it and sharing it with your audience from your own experience, your own lived experience, it's just different than mine. And in my opinion, it's equally valid and important that you have all these different voices that aren't just traditional speaking about mindfulness. It helps this practice, in my opinion, become more relevant and more pertinent to the lives people are actually living. It does. Does that make sense? Totally. It totally makes sense. I interviewed a gentleman named Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, who's a neuroscientist who wrote the book, The Mind and the Brain. I believe it's a best-selling book about neuroplasticity. And I was actually interviewing him for my habit course because you know habits are created in your brain through mm-hmm. the power of the brain being plastic and rewiring itself. But he is a big proponent of meditation, Dr. Schwartz is, and meditates, has been meditating every day for, I don't know, 25 years because of his work with neuroplasticity and has seen what meditation does for your brain. In that context, it's interesting to yeah. see how scientists and, you know, even the Dalai Lama, you know, has undergone mm-hmm. brain testing while he was meditating, you know, to see what his brain was doing. And yes, it is becoming a more mainstream, yeah, uh, well-regarded way of staying healthy and living more fully and just enjoying your life more. Completely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So can you speak a little bit about how your mindfulness practice supports your work as a coach? You and I had talked a little offline also about 
how meditation can really increase someone's confidence. And if you can speak about those things, I'd be very interested to hear about that. Yeah. So confidence is, is another topic that I write about a lot and one that is, it's actually the number one concern that people who are readers of my blogs have expressed uh, that they grapple with low confidence. You know, everybody seems to have some issue related to not feeling good enough, not feeling capable enough, not happy with their appearance, not happy with where they are in their job, fearing that they're being judged. It's probably a, a universal feeling at yeah. everyone at some point in life, but it's it's gotten pervasive. And, you know, I think we have so much access to so much more media you know, we see more in one day than probably our parents on their entire lifetime mm-hmm. you know, between our computers and televisions and cell phones. So we're constantly comparing ourselves to those around us and what we aren't achieving compared to what we are seeing in front of us. And I think mindfulness is a beautiful way to regain your confidence because it it refocuses you back to the only reality that that you have, and that is the here and now and who you are in the here and now and that you are perfectly fine and everything is perfectly fine. You have all that you need right now. There's nothing missing. In the present moment, if you do find that there's something lacking, the resources will come to you to take care of that in the present moment. But low confidence is all about projecting into some future problem or difficulty or reliving some past problem that you think will reappear in the future. Mm-hmm. But when you're present, everything's great. And you don't have to have low confidence. You don't have to worry that you're not enough because you are enough right now. I think that's such a powerful message. Yep, absolutely. It, it is. It's, you know, I wish I could claim it as something that I uniquely came up with, but I think it's, I think most of us can, intuit it if we put our minds to it, that we recognize that everybody has the same feelings. Even in my research, it was surprising to see how many celebrities and beautiful people suffer with low self-esteem or lack of confidence or not feeling good enough about themselves. People that we would assume have it all, mm-hmm. but you know they have their own unique issues related to that of having to live up to impossible standards or maintain impossible standards or not being able to be themselves or fearing that they're being loved only for their their looks or their celebrity or whatever. So there are very few people who escape those feelings of inadequacy. Yeah, I, I can't imagine anyone in, in our day and age that doesn't struggle with those on some level. And yeah. I have found certainly one of the most powerful tools for that is this present moment awareness you're talking about. And particularly, you find out often when you practice that you have a choice and you don't have to just always listen to that chorus of negative voices. Like you described in your book, you know, you could be anticipating you got in an argument with someone and you're anticipating coming home and you're like projecting that or what, whatever the rumination is, the focus, there's something endlessly refreshing about just rediscovering that present moment and rediscovering you have a choice. I hear that in what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I'm in the middle right now of writing a book on highly sensitive people. I don't know if you know anything about highly sensitive people. It is a 
a term that was coined by a psychologist named Elaine Aaron, mm-hmm. who's written a book about it and has done a lot of research on people who are highly sensitive to emotions, to the environment, to other people. They process things more deeply than average people. But it's not an unusual or it's not a personality disorder. It's an innate trait that's in the realm of normal personality. And I would characterize myself as a sensitive, highly sensitive person. And in previous years would spend a lot of time in my head overthinking things, Mm. reprocessing events, trying to think my way out of a problem or, you know, I felt like the more I pontificated and thought about it, I'd be able to better manage it or come up with a solution. But actually what I was doing was just reinforcing the negative thinking habit. Right. So the more I thought about it, I mean, you know, you do enough thinking that so that you can use your analytical ability or judgment or whatever related to a problem or an issue. But then there, there comes a diminishing point of return where your brain just starts going wackadoodle, right? And you're just like thinking, yeah. thinking so much that you're on a gerbil wheel. It becomes a, a habit that you can't disengage from. And you wear yourself down. Oh my gosh, it drains your energy incredibly. It really does. You think, oh, well, I'll, I'll be able to expel myself from this thinking cycle once I reach the answer, but that never happens because overthinking is just, it just digs, it's like quicksand. You get deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And yeah. I think mindfulness and meditation are such amazing tools for extricating yourself from that, that mire of overthinking and worry and anxiety that we can get into. Completely. And I'm curious if you experienced this too, Barry, but also it's the way to extricate yourself. But it seems I've also noticed there's other dimensions of our intelligence which are almost blocked. If you're constantly chewing on something like that or overthinking it, you can take your critical discrimination a certain length and a certain distance. But then I find sometimes I just have to let go. And Sometimes when I let go, it's then that it's probably my subconscious can work on it in a way that's not shut down by the rumination and the grinding energetic wear of overthinking it. And often that's when I find whether it's a solution or just a way to move forward that's true. You, you liberate the creative process. by Totally. Just, yeah. It's virtually impossible for your creative mind to have the freedom to access solutions or ideas or information when you've got this huge barrier of negative thought blocking the way. It is funny. It's almost like magic when you let go, as you say, and then suddenly you you have this all of this space around it now. Yeah. You've let all this space, and suddenly something just floats up and arises like a balloon. Oh, that's You're amazing. Like, yeah, it's like this little gift has been served to you, and you you didn't have to make any real effort. That's the magical part of it because you think, oh, if I just keep thinking and working and struggling, I'll figure it out. But it's when you stop struggling that it actually, you can actually figure it out. Completely. That's so interesting. I think for Westerners, that's very challenging. It is because we're trained entirely differently. Oh, yeah. Entirely differently. We're we're goal-oriented. We're productive little machines (laughs) trying to do as much and crank out as much and be be as efficient as possible. So just sitting still and, and being and allowing your mind to process on its own accord feels very luxurious and non-productive. Yeah, totally. 
So I'm curious, was there anything more on the, um, we may have exhausted this topic, but in terms of how mindfulness influences your personal coaching work? Well, you know, I find myself with, with individual coaching clients frequently talking to them about coming back to the present moment. Because the, the biggest thing that prevents people from moving forward in whatever they want to achieve, if they, they want to change careers, if they want to find their passion, if they're looking for a romantic partner, whatever it is that they're seeking, the biggest roadblock is fear. They're afraid. They have doubts. They wonder, what if? What if I don't make enough money? What if I don't find the right person? What if? What ifs are always future-oriented. So I, I constantly bring people back to what do you need to do right now to take the next step? Don't think about what could happen 30 days down the road or a year down the road. If right now means planning for some safeguard or you know, self-protection or whatever, that's fine. You can still do that if you need to plan mm-hmm. to save money or plan to lose weight. Yes, that's, but that can be part of your right now. But take it a step at a time, a day at a time, and determine whatever the next step is. Because, and then savor the journey as much as you are looking forward to the outcome. Because we always have these big outcomes in our minds that you know, we're working toward. And so we forget about all that we're doing as we're working toward that outcome. Right. But it's really, as we look back on our lives, I think everyone will recognize it's the journey toward things that brings the most fulfillment rather than the day that we achieve it. Right. That's so fleeting, right? It's, it's very it, fleeting. Yeah. It's the beauty of practice and of hard work and struggle and challenge. All of that is really what absorbs us and puts us into that state of flow where we We lose ourselves in time Mm -hmm. the same way you do in meditation. That's where we really, really find the juice of life is in doing, not having done. Yeah, that's awesome. Great. So I hope you enjoyed part one of my interview with Barry Davenport. I encourage you to listen to part two for our in-depth discussion on the science of creating healthy habits and also so you can learn Barry's pragmatic step-by-step approach to building a new meditation habit. This is the approach that she actually teaches to her own students in her course, Sticky Habits. If you want to learn more about Barry's work, head on over to liveboldandbloom.com. That's Barry's very popular website. Again, that's www.liveboldandbloom.com. And I've included that in the show notes below. She's got a great blog, lots of resources and courses that you can also check out there. And if you want to reach out to Barry directly to work with her, you can do that through her website, liveboldandbloom.com. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please do leave us a rating and a review over on iTunes. That's a big help and lets us get exposed to a lot more people. So thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And please check out part two of this interview with Barry Davenport.